every hour of every day, someone, somewhere, is praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Seven seven seven, praying at seven a.m. and seven p.m. seven days a week. Today I want to talk to you about the year that changed the modern world. Well, people often say to me, well, that's got to be 1989. Because in 1989, you will remember, that's when Tiananmen Square took place and the Chinese government put down a mass demonstration standing for liberty and uh, they don't appreciate uh, individual liberty, as we know. So they put this... uh, demonstration down, thousands were killed. And uh, that all happened in 1989, a very significant time. Also 1989 is when Solidarity in Poland, you'll remember, was elected and after 44 years of communistic uh, rule, the uh, Solidarity took over in the Catholic Church. And then nation after nation in Europe also got rid of communism. Also, um, Romania was about the only nation that resisted communism and continued on with their Stalinist ideas, and it wasn't until uh, December 25, 1989, that their um, leader was finally uh, executed by firing squad. 1989 was also the time when the Berlin Wall came down. And also 1989 was um, the year when the Pope believes that the Virgin Mary overthrew communism in Europe. And while all these um, events are very, very significant, 1989 is not the year that changed the modern world. Well, you say, what about uh, 2001, when uh, September 11? Well, that is a significant event. There's no question about it. But it didn't change the modern world. Very much life went on much the same after 2001 as it was before. I'm going to suggest to you, and I want to prove that to you as we go through today, that the year that changed the modern world is 1844. Very, very significant year. And um, as we go through, I will... um, Uh, hope to prove that to you. Just to give you a little bit of a background, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 8. In fact, the 8th chapter of Daniel outlines an amazing prophecy whereby uh, it states about the sanctuary. This is Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. 
in verse 12 where it says, Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast down truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard one holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, it is not my purpose today to explain that prophecy but I want to pick up the date that the 2,300 prophetic years or prophetic days or years brings us down to in 1844. And there are two outstanding things that uh, this prophecy indicates. One is that truth will be trampled down and the sanctuary will be trampled down. Those two things, they'll be trodden underfoot. Now, when something is trodden underfoot, that's very clearly indicating that it's not regarded well. And for this long period of time, truth was cast down and also the sanctuary was cast down. That is, it was ignored. It was forgotten about. It didn't feature at all, even in Christians' thinking, let alone the pagans for that length of time. And that brings us down to the year 1844. And in that year... God was going to raise up a movement, a message that was going to restore the sanctuary and also restore the truth that had been trampled down. And of course, the devil knew about this prophecy. And so he brought about a counterfeit because that's the way the devil has always worked. Whenever there's a truth, then the devil counterfeits it. And he brings something in which takes people's minds away from the truth. And um, you will remember, those of you who have studied this question, that around about 1844, the years just before 1844, people of all different persuasions, of different denominations, the Methodists, Baptists, Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians, all of these different denominations all were believing that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. And so you can appreciate the fact that um, because they believed this, they sold their businesses, they sold their properties. They were so much in earnest to believe that Jesus was coming back. By the way, there were no Seventh-day Adventists in that movement because Seventh-day Adventists have never set a date for the coming of Jesus. It was the Methodists and the Baptists and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Catholics. They were the ones that set the date for the coming of Jesus of October 22, 1844. And you can appreciate when Jesus did not come in that year, there was a tremendous disappointment, tremendous disappointment. And you can appreciate how the folk felt depressed, just they had been gutted and disappointed and discouraged. And many of the people gave up their faith completely in God and the Bible. And they then began to ridicule those who still believe the Bible. And it was out of 
this group who, who stood first and they said to themselves, it, the Bible's not wrong. It must be a misunderstanding that we have of what happened in 1844. And so four years later, in the year 1848, four years after 1844, 1848, these sincere Christians of all denominations met together and formed what has been known now as the Sabbath Conferences, or the Sabbath Conference. And they began to study and they said, look, Prophecy's not wrong. God is not wrong. The Bible's not wrong. It's our understanding or misunderstanding of these events. And so they began to study. And they, started, they studied the Bible. And out of that conference, that, those Sabbath conferences, they developed a theology. It wasn't new. The theology wasn't new that they developed. But it was resurrected. It, it, it was resurrecting truths that had been trodden down. Remember, Daniel talked about the message of God being trodden underfoot. Well, in 1848, as they studied this theology, they began to unravel and restore truths that had been forgotten. And they made some amazing discoveries as far as the Bible was concerned, things that they had never understood before. In fact, let me put on the screen for you the five pillars or the five doctrines that they decided among themselves were absolute, unnegotiable pillars. The first one was the sanctuary doctrine. This, uh, when they began to study the sanctuary, they found that outlaid and outlined there in the Bible was the whole plan of salvation. And they began to understand that Jesus today is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. So that was the first great pillar. The second great pillar was the message of the second coming of Jesus. And out of uh, the disappointment, they began to study again and they said, no, Jesus is going to return to this earth. And so the second Advent movement was a second pillar of that Sabbath conference. Then they had a third. And at that uh, conference, they rediscovered the Sabbath because the Sabbath had been kept down through the years. But for the vast majority of people, they had forgotten it and they rediscovered the Sabbath's beauty. Then they also discovered the state of the dead, that is, what happens when a person dies. And uh, they studied that out very carefully. And finally, the fifth great pillar was the spirit of prophecy. And actually, it's these five pillars upon which Seventh-day Adventism evolved and, and, and evolved out of those Sabbath conferences. And uh, this is what makes Seventh-day Adventism unique. And it all originated from those conferences in 1848. And this message that Seventh-day Adventists have been uh, given to preach is in the context of the sanctuary and the judgment. Sometimes it's referred to as the three angels' messages. And uh, truth is never, however, without conflict. And you can appreciate the fact that they rediscovered these great pillars and these great truths that the devil wasn't going to stand by without conflict because he was going to uh, 
he, he saw very clearly what was going to happen, and so he wanted to oppose those doctrines. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, where it says that the devil, let me just read you this text, where it says the dragon, and verse 9 tells us that that is uh, the devil, was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed or the rest of her offspring who have two major characteristics according to the Bible. One is they keep the commandments of God and the second is they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now it is this uh, text in Revelation which tells us very clearly that the devil is very angry uh, with God's people and with the special message that they have to preach. In fact, um, we could say that according to Revelation 12, 17, that the devil wasn't concerned with this message. Is that what uh, Revelation 12 is saying? Certainly not. He was very, very concerned about it. And uh, this message is so simple and so clear because it tells us about the fact that we need to worship God as the creator. It talks there about uh, giving glory to God. And then it also talks about worshipping him as uh, the creator. And so what the devil did is he called all his uh, angels. Remember one third of the angels? Listen to what the devil said. He called them all together and worked out a strategy by which he could oppose these three messages of Revelation chapter 14. And they came up with an opposing theology. But as they began to think about this, now they had two theologies. They had the five great pillars and now they had an opposing theology. But the devil realized very quickly that while they had developed this opposing theology, that wasn't never going to be accepted by those who really studied their Bibles because they would be able to see clearly the difference between what God is saying and and the opposing theology. So they realized then that they would need to come up with a number of strategies because one particular strategy is not going to appeal to everybody. So that's why the devil decided that he would bring in many strategies by which then he would be able to really entangle the entire world. And so uh, the second thing that they came up with was to pervert truth. That is, that they would make sure that people didn't understand the truth, but the truth would be perverted. And uh, it was this second strategy that worked particularly well with Christians because uh, it sounded all right. It used the same terminology as the truth, but in actual fact it was twisted twisted in a different direction. And then the third strategy that the devil came up with was a strategy by which um, he would bring spiritual lukewarmness with those who gave the message. In other words, they would believe that the message is true, but, uh, you know, so what? and life would just continue to go on and they weren't in earnest. He brought this lukewarmness across many of the leaders of the church. 
Now, I want to have a look at some of these strategies because they're very interesting and very important because the Sabbath conferences had come up with a basic teaching and that was the Bible and the Bible only was going to be the, the, the platform of truth. They would not depart from what the Bible said. Everything that they had to believe was the Bible and the Bible only. Now, what was the year that we are talking about that um, God raised up his message? What year was it? 1844. Now, it's interesting that in August 1844, a man by the name of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, they met in Paris and formed a lifelong association. And on November 19, 1844, Engels wrote to Marx. This is what he said. We are at present holding public meetings all over the place to set up societies for the advancement of the workers. By a large majority, everything Christian was banned from the rules. And he continues, the criticism of religion is the prerequisite of all criticism. And we are working for the abolition of religion and for real happiness. So that would suggest that those who follow the Marx system would be really happy. So wherever you go around the world today and you find the Marxist system, such as China and North Korea and Russia, then the people are all happy, living a happy life, which is not true, of course. But that was the basis upon which they, Marx and Engels, taught that this would be utopia if they followed their teachings. And uh, one of the devil's counter strategies is certainly not dead today because while ever we've got the trade unionism, in fact, the trade unionism is still using the hammer and the sickle in many of their um, meetings to indicate the fact that they still follow the worn out old uh, adages of Marx and Engels, even uh, after all of these years. And it's, it satisfies the downtrodden and it suggests that you can get to the top of the pile if you, if you want to do that without uh, having to believe in God. Well, then there was the intellectuals. The devil wanted to appeal to the intellectuals. So Marx and Engels appeals to uh, often the downtrodden, but the devil was after the intellectuals. So he had a plan for the intellectuals. Uh, let's give us a date. 1844. And in that very year, Charles Darwin wrote the first sketch of his um, Origin of Species. And it's, um, it's, it, he sent it out, actually, to all his intellectual mates and friends all around the world for them to comment upon his, um, his theories. And it, I, I must admit that uh, the idea of believing that everything came from nothing is just beyond my simple mind to really believe. And the more you study and see the complexity of life, 
just the human body, how it all works and how everything has to be in right order for it, it to operate. You know, the birth of a child is just incredible. All the things that have to line up and to think that that all happened just by chance just beggars my simple mind. And uh, the Dawkins of society and the Hawkins. Now, Dawkins and Hawkins were both head of the chairs at uh, Oxford University and Cambridge University. And uh, they formed a society, of course, um, Hawkins now is dead. He's the man that was in the wheelchair, you will remember. He's now dead. Um, But um, they formed a society called the Brights. Now, the purpose of the Brights was that those who were bright and, and, and people who believed in the in the simplicity of the supernatural, obviously weren't bright. In fact, Dawkins made the statement, he said uh, in his uh, hypothesis, God almost certainly does not exist. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, that statement. It's, It's a foolish statement. It's a silly statement that God almost certainly does not exist because either he does exist or he doesn't. Not almost certainly does not because I think that really he's too scared to come out boldly and say that he does not exist. So he says he almost certainly does not exist. And obviously not everyone's going to fall for the theory of evolution even though it's taught today in practically every university in the world and probably most high schools in the world. But nevertheless, not everyone has believed what Charles Darwin taught. And uh, the devil had now a perversion of truth, another perversion of truth that would appeal particularly to Christians. A man by the name of John Darby, John Nelson Darby, came up with a new teaching called dispensationalism. What year are we talking about here? 1844. Now, in that very year, this man came up with this idea of dispensationalism. Now, some of you may not have heard of dispensation. That doesn't matter too much. But dispensationalism basically teaches that there have been seven periods of earth's history and God has dealt differently with every period of those seven. And today we are living in the church period. And uh, Darby taught that the church and Israel are two different entities and uh, God deals different, differently with the church as he will deal differently with, the, uh, with Israel. And the idea is that the state of Israel or the period of Israel will start when the church is raptured away in the secret rapture. And the church after the tribu- or before the tribulation will be raptured away and then God will deal with the Jews. And unfortunately, this spread like wildfire through the churches until today. 
you would practically say that most evangelical Christians, like Baptists, Pentecostals, and other good people, but they have pretty well accepted the idea of um, dispensationalism. And as I said, it's spread through the churches like uh, wildfire. Fire. This is 1844. Now, this did not originate with J.N. Darby. He perpetuated it and he popularized it, but it didn't originate with him. It actually originated as a doctrine of the Jesuits from the Roman Catholic Church and a Jesuit priest by the name of Manuel Lacunza. By the way, Lacunza died in 1803. And he was born in Chile and he was posing as a converted Jew. And under the name Ben Ezra, he wrote in Spanish a book entitled The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty. And the same enterprising um, book was translated by an Englishman by the name of Edward Irving. And uh, Edward Irving brought the idea that Lacunza had written and brought it into the Christian church. In fact, it was Edward Irving's church in Britain that originated what we term today modern speaking in tongues. And J.N. Darby took the doctrine and modernized it and it has been accepted right across the board pretty well in Christianity today. Now, the devil also realized that um, if his message was going to be accepted, it needed to be vibrant and happy and, and, and enthusiastic. And so it's at this stage that uh, in 1844 that the rappings began in New York. And it was a few years later that the, um, in this house in Hydesville in New York was taken over by the Fox Sisters. Now, the Fox Sisters um, were really what we term today the modern originators of spiritualism, the, the rappings. And if you uh, want to read a little bit about it, you can look up uh, the Fox Sisters. And, uh, you know, I meet people sometimes even in the church, that tell me that 1844 is a non-event. Well, I like to remind them that there are two individuals in the universe that don't think that that's true. The first is God, because God said his message was going to be raised up in 1844. But the second person that recognises that 1844 is deeply significant is the devil. That's why he has brought every conceivable counterfeit that to, that's going to arise that arose in 1844. And uh, another diversion took place in 1844. You've heard of Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph Smith was born in the year 1830 and was assassinated in the year 1844. And, of course, Joseph Smith, uh, his teachings originated the uh, Mormon church, Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they call themselves. And uh, that church teaches that we're all divine. 
and we are of the order of Melchizedek. That's what they believe. And as I said, on June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith was assassinated. So here we have now another ideology that um, has got to be untangled. And uh, those, when we study with people and try to help them to understand the fact that um, that's not true, it's sometimes very difficult for folk to release themselves from uh, error that they have accepted at some time of their life. Then we have the uh, spiritualistic society called um, the DKE. Now, it's Delta Kappa Epsilon. And the uh, DKA is one of the oldest North American um, fraternities. It has 56 chapters in both North America and in Canada. And these, uh, this teaching now began to filter its way down into the universities. And it started at Yale University in the year 1844, the very year that God said his truth was going to be restored. Then you have the Baha'i faith. Now, that began in Iran, in Persia. It grew out of the Shiite branch of the, uh, of the Muslim uh, faith. And that f- was proclaimed by a, by a man by the name of the Bab, he called himself. And um, he went through uh, Persia and began to teach that uh, another messenger was going to arise from God. And that messenger would follow, first of all, Moses, and he would be followed by Jesus Christ, who'd be followed by Muhammad, and then followed by the Bab, the leader of the Baha'i faith. And give me a date for the arising of the Baha'i faith. 1844, exactly. And um, I know in Sydney, where they have a, a temple or whatever they call it, there you can see very clearly outlined 1844. That's a very deeply significant year for the um, Baha'is. And it's in and around 1844 that we find the feminist movement began. And uh, also the ecumenical movement all began in this period of the 1840s. And you can see exactly what the devil is doing here. He's bringing all these different uh, ideologies and isms because he knows that one particular ism will not appeal to everybody. So he brings all these different uh, isms and, and, and ideologies and fraternities in order to be able to deceive everybody in the world. That's his plan. And uh, they all began around about 1844, and some of them began exactly in the year 1844. Now, I'd like to go back to the year 1844 for a moment. Because in that year, a Seventh-day Baptist lady by the name of Rachel Oakes That picture doesn't do her a lot of uh, um, good, I know, but uh, that's the only picture that we can find of Rachel Oakes. And she was a Seventh-day Baptist. That is, she kept the Sabbath as a Baptist. Um, And 
she challenged one of the Millerite preachers by the name of Frederick Wheeler. And she challenged him by saying, Frederick, the Bible teaches that the seventh day is the Sabbath. Why are you keeping Sunday? And obviously um, he was a very sincere man and he began to study it himself. And uh, a few years later, he preached his first sermon on the Sabbath. And do you know what year that was? 1844. That was the year the Sabbath was really restored again uh, in, into a worldwide uh, movement. And um, the, so the, the Sabbath was reestablished in the year 1844. In the year 1844, a man by the name of Charles Fitch accepted the biblical teaching of soul sleep. That is that when we die, we don't go to heaven like uh, people believe or go to hell like some Christians teach, but rather the Bible uh, taught that we sleep in the grave until Jesus returns. That's why it's called soul sleep. And Charles Fitch rediscovered that great truth in 1844. In 1844, the spirit of prophecy was restored because you'll, if you look through the Bible, you'll find for a long period of time the spirit of prophecy was uh, lost sight of, was buried, downtrodden. In fact, it's interesting, if you study the Bible, you will find that whenever the commandments are neglected and forgotten, the spirit of prophecy disappears. And when the commandments were beginning to be studied again and people were beginning to realize that uh, God wants us to be obedient to all of his commandments, then once again the spirit of prophecy was rediscovered in the year 1844. You know, sometimes I am asked, the question is this, do you think that Perhaps the church will have some other gift of prophecy before Jesus returns. And that's an interesting question. I don't believe so, and I'll tell you why. Because if you go back to the type, now Moses was a type of the church of the last days. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, all these things happened unto them as an example for those who, of us who live at the end of time. It says that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. And if we go back and we study that typology, and by the way, typology is a very, very wonderful study in the Bible. What we mean by typology is that the Bible gives us illustrations of things that will happen in the last days. For example, the lamb in the Old Testament was a type of Jesus. That's what we mean by typology. And the, the, the Bible is full of illustrations like that. Elijah is a, is a type of the message that's going to be preached in the last days, according to Malachi chapter 4, 5 and 6. And you can go through and find that uh, there's so many illustrations and it helps us to understand the details when you know that this was a type that you go back to and study in the Old Testament. That's why when Christians teach that the Old Testament is not necessary, they are immediately 
clearing the fact that they will never understand the New Testament because the New Testament is saturated in Old Testament imagery and types and illustrations. And so when we go back to the story of uh, Moses and we notice that Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And while he was alive, he wrote down all the instruction that God gave them. And he, he, put it, he, he wrote it there in, uh, in, uh, in a book so that it could be preserved and the folk in Israel would be able to study it. And uh, when Moses finally did die, it was the job of Joshua and Caleb, you'll remember, to make sure that the writings of Moses were adhered to because he had this, the gift of prophecy. And uh, by the way, Moses had a health message. Remember, he gave to the people a health message, the story of the manna in the wilderness and how God fed them for 40 years. And you remember the story how twice as much fell every sixth day of the week and, uh, because no manna fell on the Sabbath. And it clearly marked out, because sometimes people say to me, well, how do you know that the Sabbath hasn't been changed? Well, here we have a very, very clear outline of how the Sabbath was kept for over 40 years. And uh, so God gave to Moses the health message. Now, the question is, did Moses go into the promised land? No, even though he had spent 40 years leading the children of Israel in the wilderness, he died on Mount Nebo just before they entered the promised land. You'll remember that. And uh, then God raised him from the dead according to the book of Jude, probably three days later, because once again, Moses was an illustration of Christ's life too. But Moses was raised because the Bible tells us today that Moses is in heaven with Elijah and Enoch and a few others that the New Testament talks about that were taken to heaven at the time of Christ's uh, death and resurrection. And so the people were sustained by the spirit of prophecy through that period and uh, particularly even after Moses died, the spirit of prophecy continued on. Now, does, um, does she talk about a special resurrection before Jesus comes back the second time? Yes, she does. And you'll read about it in Daniel chapter 12. And Moses had a special resurrection. Type and anti-type are wonderful studies. <coughs> and um, if you've never been involved in a study of type and anti-type, I would like to encourage you to do it because it's a very, very profitable and very, very wonderful uh, study. Well, what year was the sanctuary restored? 1844. The great... Uh, subject of the sanctuary and there's nothing in the Bible as clear as the subject of the sanctuary. Do you know that there's more in the sanctuary about the sanctuary in the Bible than any other subject? There are whole books in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, Hebrews, Revelation, 
in the New Testament and, of course, books in the Old Testament that are pretty well totally devoted to the work of the sanctuary. That's why it's such an important subject. And the sanctuary helps us to understand the story of salvation in the detail it's given. And so um, the sanctuary was restored in the year 1844. And uh, as we have said, the devil is uh, interested in counterfeits. And every one of God's truths that were discovered in, rediscovered in 1844, then the devil has counterfeited. And of course, something else that happened was that the devil, or God, sorry, laid on the people who were accepting these five pillars, laid on their hearts a desire to preach the message and to take it to the whole world because up until that stage, they had a very limited understanding of evangelism. But uh, as a result of uh, the study of Revelation chapter 14, they realized that the message must go to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. And on May 24... 1844, a man by the name of Samuel Morse. There he is, Samuel Morse. Now, many of you will know that uh, that's where we get the name Morse code from because he uh, discovered Morse code. In fact, uh, he was the first man to ever send a message by telegraph. And it all happened in 1844. Um, that he was situated in the Supreme Court in Washington and he had his friend Albert Vale over in Baltimore and he sent over the telegraph a message to him over that long distance and the, and the, the words were very interesting because it says, What hath God wrought? That were the first words that were ever sent by telegraph. And in the very year, 1844, when the message now needs to go out to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, God allowed the discovery of the telegraph. And it's from the telegraph, of course, that we have all the modern discoveries of uh, the internet and so forth that have been developed as a result of that. In fact, uh, it's, it's interesting that Samuel Morse himself was a very, very diligent student of the Bible. He loved the Bible. In fact, he wrote more about the Bible, particularly the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, than he ever did on on the telegraph. Even though that's what he's known for in the world, he was far more interested in the Bible and in God. And that was the year 1844. You know, as I often think about the message that God has given to us, it is absolutely watertight. God has given to us something which is just amazing because you can't argue with these things. This is just a matter of history. Look them up. Search on the internet and you'll find that all of these things took place in the year 1844. By the way, it's the, the um, railroad, the Columbus Xenia Railroad was, um, came into being in 1844 because this is the year now when 
people wanted to be able to travel from one place to another and God allowed the discovery of uh, the railroads. In fact, in the 1840s, just listen to what was discovered in those years. First of all, railroads were, disco- were, were discovered. Then ocean-going liners and steamships came into being. This is when the electric telegraph was discovered and the advent of uh, inexpensive mail called the penny post. Now, once again, because we have uh, the post today and the postman brings our letters even to our our front door or our post box, we don't realise that it wasn't that many years ago that um, that was not the case. You can, you can appreciate the fact of taking a letter from one part of uh, Britain to another, because this is where it was discovered in Britain, would be very, very expensive. And only the very, very rich people would ever be able to have a letter. But in 1844, the penny post, it was called the penny post because it cost one penny. And that meant that every person... Was, it was the penny post was now available to everybody. And it's from the penny post that the post office has been developed that we uh, experience today. This is also the time the ability to produce photographs from a negative was discovered. Um, 1844, by the way, was the year when sanitation began to be developed in Europe and in Britain because prior to that, there was no sanitation as such. In fact, if you study what happened prior to 1844, you will find that uh, every house would have a potty and uh, would usually be situated in the centre of the house and at midnight that potty was emptied and the way they emptied it was to tip it out the front window onto the path below. That's why every house pretty well had a pig because the pig was there to help clean the streets as much as it's possible. When I was over in Edinburgh, I went to a museum that they've set up which explains all this and shows exactly how they lived prior to 1844. And uh, the, the shoes had high rises on them. The shoes looked like our shoes on the top, but on the bottom they had um, high rises. Now, you can understand why they had to walk high because they were walking on the footpath and uh, you can imagine what they uh, had to walk through. And God allowed all these amazing things to be discovered and uh, that's why Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 says that... um, The Jew Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. And one of the indications of the time of the end, many shall run to and fro and what? Knowledge Knowledge shall increase. And that includes the knowledge that we're talking about here. It includes the study of the Bible too, but it certainly includes the, 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 the discovery of knowledge that the message now could be taken to every nation, kindred, tongue and people because prior to that, that wouldn't have been possible. And God allowed all these amazing uh, discoveries to take place. 
And of course, the, the devil is, is out and about to try to discourage God's people. And one of the things that um, the devil hates is his message, this message being preached. And that's why he will try to discourage. He will try to bring every conceivable false teaching even into the church because the purpose of that is to distract because obviously if you and I have questions in our minds as to whether the truth is the truth who's going to give up their life and and give up their work over the Sabbath if you've got questions in your mind as to whether it's true or not no one's going to do that it's hard enough when everything's going well to do all that God wants us to do, let alone when you've got questions in your mind as to whether it's true or not. And it's part of the devil's plan to bring in confusion, to bring into our hearts uncertainties because uncertainty kills evangelism. In fact, um, let me read you a statement that the Spirit of Prophecy says. She says, As the Lord's people show their determination to follow the light that has been given, the enemy brings all his powers to bear to discourage them. You think about that. So as the light comes, then the devil is bringing... Uh, thoughts to discourage but they are not to give up because of the difficulties that arise when they try to follow the counsels of the Lord so we're not to give up and um, but as the closer we get to the coming of the Lord I believe every wind of doctrine that's possible to blow is going to blow because the last thing that the devil wants is for this message to succeed. And uh, when I read about the type of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and I see the experience that they went through, and how the devil tried to distract them with criticism and, um, and with discouragement, If you read the story of the wilderness wanderings, you will see how over and over and over again God tried to distract that people from getting into the promised land. And that is a type again of the last days. And I believe it's even worse for us because we have so much more knowledge than they had. We have so much more clear evidence of the Lord's uh, working in our our lives and and in the church. That's why uh, God wants us to be strong in the Lord and to be faithful. In fact, um, the great need that every one of us has today is to be reformation and revival. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Reformation and revival. But uh, reformation without revival is hopeless. There's no such thing as reformation without revival. Our hearts have got to be revived. And uh, God is, is calling for us today to be faithful to him um, and, and to study. Uh, one of our other programs, we were talking about how it's, it's so important for us to have 
time every day in order to get to know God and to, to have an experience with him because it is that experience that will help us when tribulations and when difficulties and when discouragements come and surely they will come to us all. I don't care who we are. God will bring discouragements and sometimes they, those discouragements come from the family. Sometimes they're in the church. But wherever they come from, God wants us to be faithful. And uh, one of the experiences that um, we read about in the Bible is how that, uh, once again, those God's people, we look at Paul as an illustration. And uh, in this series, we've been talking about Paul. If ever a person had had a reason for discouragement, it would have been Paul. When we think of the obstacles and the difficulties and um, just the, the persecution that the poor man went through. And those experiences have been recorded so that we will not lose our confidence and our faith. And we must learn to trust in the Lord. And one of the things that gives me encouragement is when I see in my own life how God answers prayer and God opens up opportunities for us in ways that you say, I just can't believe that the way the, way the Lord has led. That gives us encouragement, doesn't it? It helps our faith. It builds our confidence and our faith uh, up. And uh, my prayer for all of us today is that God will keep us faithful. And uh, there's only one way that that can happen, and that is by spending time with God, because God encourages our hearts. He, he, he gives us that strength. And um, we, we remember the story of Elijah, how Elijah was discouraged. Remember the story? Very discouraged. In fact, um, if he was alive today, we'd probably say that he had uh, depression, serious depression. And uh, yet God encouraged him until today. He, uh, he's uh, in heaven above. And also that Elijah message that he proclaimed to Ahab, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel is an illustration of the message that God has for us today. So may God help us to be faithful. God, help us to, to, to stand by the truth. Help us to spend time with you on a daily basis so that we will get to know you and have that confidence that only you can give us. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I just want to thank you again today for your grace. I want to thank you as we look back upon prophecy and prophecy has been given to us to encourage our hearts like when we travel on the road. And we have a signpost that indicates where we are, how that encourages us. Well, it's the same with uh, the Christian pathway. God has given to us prophecy so that we can see where we are in the light of uh, time. And so keep us faithful, please, Lord. Help us to get to know you as our friend and as our saviour. And when Jesus comes, help us to be there on that wonderful day. I pray for Christ's sake. Amen.
Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Have a blessed and happy Sabbath from your family at 3 a.m. Welcome to 3ABN Today Family Worship. Thank you for joining us. My name is John Dinsey and it's a blessing for me to be with you. And also I am blessed to have my wifey Dahlia with me. Yes. Do you really mean that? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It is a blessing. You know, sometimes we don't t uh, tell our family members how much of a blessing they are in our lives. And I praise the Lord that my husband reminds me that every single day. So turn around and talk to your daughter, your son, your wife, or whatever, whoever is next to you. Tell them, you're a blessing to me. Amen. You're a blessing Amen. to me. You're a blessing to me. Right. <laughs> praise the Lord. You know what? Yeah, it's been a busy week. Right? It has. It has. But thank you, Jesus, for the gift that the Lord gave us from creation, which That's is right. rest. The mm -hmm. Sabbath day. Mm -hmm. The Sabbath day has come, so we say to you, Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but That's we'd right. like to introduce the mm -hmm. family members that are with us. Mm -hmm. And so, Idalia, could you help us? Sure. We have Celestine with us. Hello. Celestine, welcome back. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yes. People are like, that is Celestine. I've seen her on three. I've heard her voice singing. Oh. <laughs> Praise the Lord. How long have you had your singing ministry? Um, since probably when I am um, still in the Philippines. Probably when was, you were two years old? Yeah, five, I guess. Five? <laughs> <laughs> that is so nice. What a blessing you Praise are. Praise the Lord. Praise yes, the Lord. you are a blessing. Amen. <laughs> so you have a blessing next to you. Who is that? Yeah, that's my... Pum-pum. <laughs> my beloved husband. Yes. Praise the Lord. His name is Brian. Uh, thank you for joining us. Brian Dickens and yes. Celestine Dickens. On my right, we have Pastor Daniel Morricone. And would you please introduce your wife? Oh, this is Valerie, my sweetheart. Uh, Amen. Almost 49 years this year. Then. Amen. Oh, Amen. What a blessing. Blessing, yes. Very Amen. much a blessing. Wow. And I love the Sabbath. You know, you can put all the things from the week and worries and stuff like that, yes. put them aside and just enjoy God's holy yes. day. Yes. Really. It is a special 24-hour period. Yes, it so is. So special. And it's blessed by the Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, I was thinking about that because um, I, those that understand the Sabbath 
and the blessing of the Sabbath, uh, they receive a greater blessing uh, understanding that they can rest, mm. put all the bills aside, <laughs> put all the work worries aside, and all of the issues uh, of life, Amen. put them aside, and dedicate the time to uh, a closer connection with the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can have a closer connection with the Lord during the week. Mm-hmm. However, you still have issues. So we got to go to work. We got to do this. We got to do that. Mm-hmm. And it can become a burden. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, right. And so the Sabbath. It's a time of rest. I like to go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 16 and uh, read there uh, something powerful because we have Jesus as our example. Mm -hmm. And it says, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And you can see there in verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. You can continue reading there. Mm -hmm. But you see here that Jesus, his custom was to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day Mm -hmm. and have a time of worship. And so it's a, we're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are resting on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day. And some people are saying, Sabbath day? Well, what day of the week is that? Mm -hmm. I only know of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Where's that day? And so we understand from the Bible that it's uh, the seventh day is Saturday. That's right. So anyone would like to comment about that? Well, I don't have a comment about exactly what you said right now, but I do want to share that the scroll, of, when he read and it was written, mm-hmm. the spirit of the Lord, this is verse 18, is upon me, mm-hmm. for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Um, he has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released or freedom, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I, I want to focus on the good news to the poor. Sometimes, you know, we don't see ourselves as poor, Mm -hmm. but you might be poor in spirit, Yes, you know, Mm -hmm. and this is when you discover the treasures, the wealth that it is to uh, commune with God during these Sabbath hours. Mm-hmm. When, when Sabbath comes around and we worship together, we sing along, we go to church, we see our fellow believers there, or we have a fellowship lunch together. I mean, all of this is part of your special Sabbath experience as you worship. Amen. So we always pray, Father, please accept our, our worship, our, accept our adoration. Mm-hmm. So pray and you will be inspired because God has been more than good to us. Amen. 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 Thank you. Well, before we continue, we'd like to invite you to join us in prayer. And I think I'd like to ask Brian if you will lead us in prayer, please. All right. Wonderful. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to come here together to worship you and to look into your word. And most of all, Lord, thank you for bringing us into this Sabbath day to give us the peace and tranquility to know that you are always with us. And Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit be with us in our discussion and as we read the Bible to glorify you in everything that we say and do here on this evening. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 You know, I like to say concerning the Sabbath, if you want more information, a mm-hmm. uh, good place to start is to go all the way to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Mm-hmm. But you can go further than that. Go 